Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Stacy Kauk, head of sustainability for Shopify. Millions of the world's most successful brands trust Shopify to sell, ship, and process payments anywhere. That you probably knew. What you may not know is that Shopify has also emerged as an unlikely leader in helping jumpstart the carbon removal ecosystem. They recently committed to partner with nine new companies focused on carbon removal to make their total commitments from their sustainability fund $32 million since launch across 22 companies. Stacy was brought in to lead this effort and take it to market after spending her entire career working on environmental and climate challenges. I was excited for this one because I wanted to hear, one, about Stacy's journey and what it was that made her think that joining an e-commerce company was the most impactful thing she could do for climate in the next phase of her career. And two, I wanted to get a closer look at what Shopify is up to. They're such a good example of how you do not need to be a climate company to do impactful work for climate. And it's really interesting to learn more about why they did it where they are in their journey, the different iterations that got them to where they are, their long vision, where they're going, what kinds of projects they're backing, how they determine which projects to back, and what else they're doing to make their operations more sustainable and help jumpstart the clean energy transition. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. You are such a visible figure in the climate movement, given both the way Shopify has been this unlikely candidate to step up and take such a leadership role and your role within Shopify, but you and I have never spoken before. So I'm psyched to have you on the show, but I'm also psyched to meet you. I feel like I've been hearing your name a ton. Yeah, likewise. I listened to a lot of your episodes. So really excited to be on here and to get to dive into all of this with you. 
Likewise, and I did listen as part of my preparation to the episode you did with my partner, Cody Sims, when he was still at Techstars. So I feel like he already asked a lot of the questions I would have asked, but I still have plenty of questions left to ask. So I'll try to mix it up a little bit and not just duplicate his efforts. But if there's a little bit of redundancy, that's okay too, because I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't listened to that episode. But he set a high bar. He's a good host. (laughs) Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed my conversation with Cody. Well, take it from the top, Stacey, just talk a bit about what Shopify does as a company and what your role is within the firm. Just set the context for listeners. Shopify is a leading global commerce company, and we've become the platform of choice for entrepreneurs all around the world. We have millions of merchants in over 175 countries worldwide. Some examples of key brands on our platform are Allbirds, Gymshark, Heinz, Tupperware, Netflix, Figs. As a company, we have over 7,000 employees worldwide. And at Shopify, I'm the head of sustainability. And one of those key elements is overseeing Shopify's sustainability fund, which has committed $32 million to date since we launched in 2019. The fund is focused on long-term carbon removal, but also emissions reductions. So we're taking a a two-prong approach, and that's my role at Shopify. Great. And talk a bit about your personal journey and professional journey, for that matter, in terms of how you came to care about sustainability and how it came to be such a big part of your professional role. Sure. I'll share two quick stories with you about how I came to be at Shopify in this role. So the first story comes from my childhood. When I was growing up in the 80s, you probably remember the ozone layer was the key environmental concern at the time. There was a lot of stuff in the news. It was like refrigerators and CFCs and ozone layer. And styrofoam. I don't know how old I was at the time, but I ate a lot of McDonald's on the way to hockey tournaments and whatnot. And did you grow up playing hockey? I did. I did. Oh, hockey is a huge part of my family's life, both for me growing up and now for my son. Amazing. Yeah, no, I'm a true Canadian, right? So having McDonald's in the 80s, you had your styrofoam packaging. And I was like, this isn't cool. This needs to change. So I wrote a letter to McDonald's and I was like, you know, this packaging has got to go. The ozone layer, we've got to do something about this. I was a little kid. I don't even know if my parents mailed the letter. But my takeaway from that was when they changed the packaging from styrofoam to cardboard, I was like, I can make a difference in the world. I wrote that letter and look, they listened, but not because of me, (laughs) you know? Oh, I was going to say, like, that would have been amazing. uh, But they might have mailed it and it might have had some impact. You don't know. Exactly. I don't know. But I think that experience and that connection in my head gave me the belief that every person can make a difference. And so that was like my childhood sustainability experience. And then fast forward to... Before I joined Shopify, I spent 10 years working for the Canadian government, and I was the manager of Canada's ozone layer protection program before I left and joined Shopify. So I have these touch points from my childhood of being into environmental protection and nature and being concerned, and then my professional career has always played in that space. So there's some nice parallels there. Another little story to share would be In the 90s, I ended up going to junior college in the U.S. to play softball. 
And I really just wanted to play softball. I wasn't really keen on or really caring about what I did in school. I was going for the NCAA sports experience. And so I ended up picking computer networking to study. So this is like back in the beginning of dot com. This would have been mid 90s and loved it, got really into it, learned how to build computers and really enjoyed that. So after my softball career ended and I needed to get serious with my studies, I decided, well, the logical next step would be a computer systems engineering degree. I love this stuff. Let's keep doing it. I got about halfway through my second year and realized that perhaps it was straying from my core love of nature and natural systems. So I hit the reset button and decided to switch to environmental engineering. So at least some of my credits transferred, that was a bonus. But really, it was the realization that I love math and I love models and being able to apply that to natural systems to protect them, to understand them and design solutions that will minimize wastewater pollution, purifier air, all of those things. I was like, yeah, you know, maybe that's a better use of my skills. And so that's what I did in university. And then I became a consulting engineer, trying to use those skills I learned to help different companies working in various industry sectors minimize their pollution and their emissions through the application of technology. Fast forward to now, and I've had a career that's been within the environmental space my whole life. I'm now working at a technology company, Shopify, that's building at the forefront of Web3, and I get to lead sustainability here. So it's this lovely intersection of my enjoyment and appreciation of technology, but also the skills I've built as an environmental engineer practicing actually on the ground that I now get to do both in my current role, which is just wonderful. Uh huh. And talk to me a bit about your whole career in and around environmental engineering and this internet commerce company picks up the phone and calls you. Where were they at when they reached out and what was your first thought? Because it doesn't seem like the obvious place to go for someone who spent their entire career in and around environmental engineering. It really wasn't obvious until I got to know Shopify and what they were doing. The best place for everyone to understand what Shopify was up to is to explain where the sustainability fund idea came from. This was really a result of our CEO, Toby, going, well, we want to be carbon neutral. We want to be responsible for our historical missions as a company, but I'm not going to buy a cheap offset. I'm not going to buy something just so that we can check a box and say everything's okay. From a systems perspective, the logical kind of project to support is one that actually reverses your emissions, actually goes out and captures carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and locks it away forever. Yeah, the molecule may not be from your company's operations, but from an atmospheric perspective, you are undoing your footprint. And so he went out and the team went out and was like, well, we got to go find some projects to support. This is still pre-Stacy? This is pre-Stacy. So this is back in 2019. BS, before Stacy. <laughs> Perfect. As long as it's not the other translation of that acronym. <laughs> yeah. So the team all went out and we're trying to find projects that did atmospheric capture with long-term storage so that Shopify could support something that was appropriately impactful. 
And there was a realization that there wasn't much actually available. A lot of these solutions are in labs on paper. And what did exist at the time was extremely expensive and in super small quantities. So essentially, the product Shopify wanted to buy in terms of a climate project wasn't readily available. Toby identified this as there's a non-existent market. Was this pre-carbon? Was Carbon Direct in and helping advise at that point or not yet? No, this is how everything started to unfold. So this was almost the genesis of creating the $5 million climate fund. This was just like an internal team of people without training that cared, basically. I can't comment on their training per se, but it's people who went out. Toby did deep research. Our head of IR cares deeply about this and has done a ton of work over the years at Shopify on this. So they just really started asking questions and connected with people in the carbon removal space as well, like leading academics, and were asking questions like, well, where do we get this thing we want to buy? And went down to first principles to figure out why can't we buy this and why is nobody really, really working on it? I want to keep going with you telling the story in a moment, but just a quick pit stop to say that I love this example because here's an online commerce company. I mean, it's a company that's doing very well and has vast resources and things like that, but it's not a company that's quote unquote related to climate change in terms of the, well, every company is related to climate change, but it's not a company that is actively addressing it as part of their core solution set, but it's just a company where the leadership cared and started asking questions and took small steps that led to medium steps, which led to bigger steps. And so when people say, I want to switch to a career that puts climate front and center, and that'd be great. And I support it. And that's what I did. And it's an awesome path. But that's not the only way to help. You can stay right where you are and play a big role on helping with the problem. 100%. Every job's a climate job. There's a lot of people that say that. If you do the research and you're operating in some adjacent thing, you're building another product or a widget that really has nothing to do with climate change, you can always do that in a way that minimizes emissions. And you can always do that in an innovative way that considers the climate amongst all of the other design principles you're applying. So 100%, yes, you can have an impact from anywhere without having to move into a climate company specifically. Okay, so the Shopify team started down the path, asking questions, starting from first principles, uncovering that there was a gap, then what? And then it was like, well, we probably should play a role in addressing that gap. And the decision was made that if we want to buy and support high quality carbon removal projects, we should make a minimum annual commitment to do so, so that there's a reliable demand signal out in the market. Recognizing 5 million is not going to create a robust market, but being a first mover to create a market and hopefully bringing others along with us could kickstart the carbon removal market. And so the decision was made to start Shopify's sustainability fund to allocate a minimum of $5 million every year towards supporting the solutions and technologies that will reverse climate change. That happened in September 2019. The decision was made to pursue that. And at that point, the company was like, we need to hire somebody to build that. And that's where I come in. So that would be after Stacy. <laughs> and so if I'm hearing right, the initial thought behind the Shopify Sustainability Fund was that 
cheap offsets might on paper look like you're counteracting the pollution that the company produces, but it isn't truly doing it because the quality is suspect and additionality and permanence and things like that. And so to go with higher quality products is the desired path, but it is hard to find enough of them to do the job that are truly above the bar. So let's start a fund. Now, was the fund to invest in the companies behind these projects or essentially just committing to purchasing a minimum of $5 million per year of these projects in a way, in the same way that you would purchase an offset? Yes, it is not an equity investment. It is a purchase commitment. So we spend that in a very flexible way. What we like to do is prepay. And so we'll make a purchase and we recognize first we're paying a high premium because we're an early adopter. The capital's not amortized over a significant number of carbon removal units that you can buy. So we're paying a very high price, but we also like to pay that up front so that it gets the capital into the hands of the climate companies so that they're able to do more with the cash and then they are able to deliver the carbon removal once they're up and running. And we also like to do longer term multi-year agreements. It's not a one-off purchase. Like when you go out and you're trying to balance your carbon accounting and you have to buy X number of offsets by the end of Q1 in the following year to balance your carbon books, we're not doing that one-off purchase in these cases. We're signing multi-year deals that give these companies a longer runway where they know that they have a buyer for a certain amount of quantity year over year over year. And what that's doing is facilitating investment from other sources for those companies because they're able to demonstrate, look, we've already got revenue on our books and we're still operating a pilot plant. And so that really helps accelerate their development and progress as a company. And so given that you have been working in and around the environment for your whole career, I I feel like carbon removal is a lightning rod topic in the environmental movement. How had you and had you been thinking about carbon removal as a potential solution before the Shopify opportunity emerged? And what is it about carbon removal that made you excited that this was the place you wanted to anchor for the next phase of your career? I'd always been a skeptic when it came to offsets and carbon accounting. And I felt that it was very much an exercise, like a Catholic absolution, you know, like you, you sin and you go and you're forgiven and everything's fine, but like you still did the bad thing. I felt at the time that it really wasn't going to be what would get us there as a planet to reversing climate change. Offsets wouldn't? Yeah, offsets, especially from like low quality projects where it's a sham, they're being sold twice, the forest actually isn't there and you're getting a picture from, you know, another location. And it just seems a little opaque at the time. And digging into these kinds of projects and seeing what an offset was actually made of, the question in my mind was, well, why would I or Shopify pay another company to not pollute as much as we just did? Paying another company not to pollute when the technology is there They should just use it, like from a moral obligation. You know how to not do it. You don't need me to pay you to not do it. Just don't do it. 
that was the frustrating component around avoided emissions offsets. And for me, carbon removal is so much more of a pure application. You're paying someone to provide you with a service to go out and vacuum up your emissions and lock them away for a long period of time. And that's a service. It's a cleaning service, essentially, right? You're cleaning the atmosphere on behalf of someone who's emitting something that's unavoidable. I think that's a much cleaner way to think about it because carbon removal from the atmosphere's perspective is net negative. Whereas in avoided emissions, your emissions are still up there. You just paid somebody else not to do the same thing. For the critics out there, I know some of the critiques that I've heard, but without asking leading questions, what are some of the critiques that are most prominent of carbon removal and how much and how did you think about those when determining that this was where you wanted to anchor in the next phase of your career? The most frustrating argument against carbon removal is the one of a moral hazard, where if you're spending money on carbon removal, that's money that should be going to emissions reductions. And this viewpoint that they're mutually exclusive, if you're doing one, you're obviously not doing the other. I think it's a false equation. And I find it very frustrating because we have to do both and we need to do both as fast as possible. Anyone who pays attention to the economics at all knows that it is more cost effective to avoid emitting a ton today than it is to go out, capture and store that ton of emissions in the future. So obviously the money needs to be spent on emissions reductions and it's way more efficient. But emissions reductions alone are not going to get us to where we need to be. The science is super clear on that, where we actually need carbon removal technologies on top of deep emissions reductions in order to reverse climate change and avoid the most intense impacts that are now being forecasted by the IPCC and others. We can't just focus on one or the other. It can't just be avoiding emissions now because we need to scale carbon removal concurrently at the same time so that we're doing both. And I think that's the most frustrating argument because we need to be doing everything all at once as fast as possible. From my perspective, that means that we need a diverse ecosystem. We need a diverse set of approaches. We need people who are solely focused on emissions reductions, and that's what their jam is. We need people and companies are only focused on carbon removal, and that's what they want to put their money on, because what we need to do is encourage everyone in all aspects. And I don't like the divisiveness of that narrative, and it's very frustrating because Anybody who's doing anything should be encouraged, supported, and welcomed to the ecosystem. We did touch on one of the big concerns that I've heard, which is around, I mean, essentially, the argument is that it's fossil fuel company propaganda and that carbon removal is permission for business as usual. And if we could truly do both, then great. But from a human psychology standpoint, by giving people an out, it takes their foot off the gas or off the EV pedal or whatever to actually clean up their own house as it relates to their generated emissions. Do you worry about that? Because yes, we need both, but do you worry about that psychological element? This is going to be an unpopular opinion. So I think of it a lot like wastewater. 
a long time ago, we didn't know what to do with it and we just threw it out in the street and there were all sorts of adverse health effects and our cities were unpleasant. We didn't like it. We didn't stop generating wastewater. We figured out how to deal with it and how to clean it and how to be responsible. This solution is still being implemented around the world. There's still issues around this, but we know what we need to do. It's a question of economics. When it comes to carbon removal, and it being purported as an excuse to continue polluting because technology is going to save us. Part of me challenges that and says, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if it did? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we took all of the financial resources and the big brains and we were able to solve it in a very similar way as we solved our wastewater problem? And right now we're at the point in history, which it will be history, where we're trying to reduce it. We're also potentially going to uncover solutions that could, like this is going to cause a lot of clapback, but what if we did develop some solutions that were scalable and were profitable and were able to enable us to emit and know that we were able to take care of it? It's like science fiction in past 2050, but that potential is there where these solutions could scale and could allow us to begin using fossil fuels again down the road, which is a crazy concept. But right now, we can't afford to be doing that. We have to be reducing our emissions because the technologies are not there. And so for right now, I would agree that we need to be focused on emissions reductions, but we also have to be scaling carbon removal. So we need investment in both because for carbon removal to get to the scale we need to allow us to have that permission to still pollute, we have to get to that time horizon first. And it's way down the road. So we'll probably wreck our planet before then if we don't focus on emissions reductions while building these longer-term solutions. And it seems like the IPCC report models that there needs to be lots of carbon removal but if you double click on that, it seems like it's very unclear in terms of what can actually get us there on that side in a way that has both the scale and the economics that will enable it to do so. And some of the critics have said that we'll never be able to do it at enough scale, we'll never be able to do it in a way where the math works to have this be a viable solution at a level other than these little experiments like the 5 million per year Shopify fund. So <laughs> what would you say in response to that concern? I mean, what choice do we have? I think the findings that you're quoting and referring to show us that current efforts are inadequate. We know we need carbon removal. And if the current estimates are showing that not enough is going to be there, well, then we better get moving. I spend a lot of time talking to other potential buyers of carbon removal and explaining how you need to get your investments in there now because we desperately need this. And I think that that evidence should start spurring action. But we also need other supporting factors at the table. We need policy support. We need advocacy. It's not just going to be about the dollars, these small experiments, as you called them. We need a full systems approach to solving the problem to get these to scale. And I'm envisioning, and I don't know if this is the right way to think about it, but that if you're going to try to deploy 5 million a year 
coming in and you want to do it in a way that is truly additional and high quality and things like that, there's almost like a stack that you need because you first need to understand. And I'm saying this like a statement, but really this is a question, but I would think you would first need to understand your own footprint and what is the gap? And then you need to understand, okay, if that's the gap, well, how do I assess each of these different potential solutions and how can I deploy my capital confidently to ensure or to give me the peace of mind that it's going to do what we intend it to do. So how do you think about that stack if you even think about it that way? And where were you coming in in terms of being equipped to deploy the 5 million confidently? And where are you today? (laughs) That's a great question because I was very naive. I was like, $5 million. Oh, man, I'm so excited to go and and deploy that capital in the first year. I thought it was going to be super easy. There's going to be tons of companies. It's going to be easy to uncover them. And I quickly learned, okay, there's not a lot to buy. There's really going to be challenges in deploying that $5 million year over year. And that brought me to a lot of discussions with the leading academics in a variety of verticals, you know, from direct air capture to ocean-based solutions, to biomass, to mineralization, um, forestry projects, renewable energy, soil carbon. And I started talking to everybody and realized that it can't just be me. I'm going to need to have a network that is able to do several things flag new and exciting things that are coming out of labs, flag companies that are doing a great job, point out the ones that may not have it right quite yet. And I realized that a lot of the experts I was talking to are in fact all on the science team at Carbon Direct. And coincidentally, within the first 10 days of starting at Shopify to work on the sustainability fund, I met Jonathan Goldberg and Julio Friedman at Columbia University and had a great conversation with them and realized that tapping into what Carbon Direct was building in terms of their science board would be really beneficial to the program that I was building. By the way, Jonathan is another example of someone who, like me, was doing something totally different and then decided that he wanted to help in climate and He's managed to find a spot and be having a huge impact, but I think he came in without any training and has just found a way to get up to speed and start deploying his expertise and capital in a way that matters. Totally. And I'm pretty sure he came from the dark side. Pretty sure he was over on like the oil and gas and energy side of things too. I think it was like, yeah, it was like commodities, hedge funds, something like that. I don't know. Finance, that whole world is a black box to me. Yeah, um, I I hear you. But yeah, it certainly wasn't on the saving the world side. No, no. And it's wonderful (laughs) to have all that energy. And I love to mentor people and talk to people. I learn so much and I get rejuvenated. And some of the things that we talk about, people are searching, well, where's the most impactful place for me to work? What part of the carbon removal space should I focus on? And where should I join? And I always say, what do you do best? Because whatever you do best that got you this far in your other career is exactly what you need to bring to the climate space, because there will be an analogous role. There will be that skill set that's needed on the climate side of things. And lo and behold, that usually helps them focus right in on where they need to go. So Jonathan's a great example, not that I mentored Jonathan, that's not what I'm saying. He's a great example of taking previous life experience and using it to further climate action. 
Okay, so you uncovered that you needed a lot of external expertise. You were talking to the Carbon Direct team frequently. Then what? Well, and then it was time to make our first set of purchases. So you engaged the Carbon Direct team to help you before that first set of purchases occurred? They were acting as sort of an advisory service. Mm -hmm. They provided us with additional due diligence on the scientific and financial side of things. Like deploying 5 million into climate needs a little bit of rigor behind it, not just my rigor. And so they provided support as we were identifying the companies we wanted to work with. So that was really, really helpful. And so we ended up creating two portfolios our frontier portfolio, which includes technologies that permanently remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So that's direct air capture, products like concrete, ocean-based solutions, biomass, and mineralization. And then we created our evergreen portfolio, which includes solutions that temporarily remove carbon, so less durable storage options. But these solutions are readily available and deployable now for immediate benefit. It may not be long-term benefit, but it'll certainly be helpful right now to reduce global warming. Like what? Oh, like forest protection and reforestation projects, as well as soil carbon storage. And then we also have in there initiatives that reduce emissions. So this is where we house our renewable energy efforts for Shopify, as well as some initiatives related to transportation. And that's really connected back to Shopify's core business in that we provide tools for brands to build their retail business. And so part of that is with millions of merchants around the world, they're shipping packages everywhere. So while Merchants shipping packages may not be directly Shopify's emissions. It is the emissions of commerce, right? So transportation and shipping decarbonization is really important for Shopify because it's key to our mission to make commerce better for everyone. So focusing in on transportation is important for our merchants because it'll give them some access to less emissive solutions when it comes to shipping. So when you looked at those buckets that you just went through and you had Carbon Direct at your side helping you assess, what did you find in terms of the state of the supply for these projects? And what were the biggest hurdles or challenges in you deploying that capital confidently? Other than expertise, which you just mentioned how you addressed. There's a couple of different types of companies. There are Some carbon removal companies like Carbon Cure and Climeworks, who are already operational at this point, and this is mid-2020, they're operational, they are capturing and storing carbon dioxide, they're delivering what they're doing, except it's on a small scale. And they have some buyers, not big buyers. So they're looking for big buyers. They're looking for multi-year deals because they're at a growth inflection for their companies. They want to get enough buyers so they can demonstrate to sources of capital that it's time to build that next generation facility. Look, we've got the buyers lined up. And so that group brought me to the question of with Shopify's $5 million fund, what's the most impactful thing we can do to help them? And the most impactful thing we could do was not a one-off purchase. It was a multi-year deal and not do a small deal, do as big a deal as we could manage while still maintaining availability to fund that wide range of 
portfolio solutions we're looking for. And so that led us to the concept of multi-year deals with options. And so we sign contracts that generally are four or five years in length and often have an option for a five-year extension. So that's almost a 10-year deal that we're able to offer these companies who are at that growth stage. This was the start of our flexible contracting approach. So those are the growth companies. What I also noticed at this time was there's some like really promising companies who are doing bench scale testing and are looking to find ways to get their pilots funded. And so we started talking to these companies and they weren't interested in selling any of the carbon removal that would happen at their pilots. They hadn't thought about it actually as a way to generate revenue for their business. They were like, well, we're just going to do our pilot. And then once we're done our pilot, we'll be able to like start scaling up and it'll be great. We'll have all the results we need. I'm like, well, if your pilot works, why wouldn't you sell from your pilot? And so that got us into this idea of pre-purchasing from pilots But then if the pilot goes well, the contract also includes an add-on for a guaranteed purchase from their next scale facility. That created the connectivity that some of our companies needed, like Planetary Hydrogen is a great example. They're working on getting their pilot started, but we've agreed to buy any carbon removal from their pilot. And we enter into prepayments with these companies to help them fund research to bring on senior advisors to actually buy the equipment they need. So there's that kind of company. And then another example where we realized we needed to have flexibility and ended up becoming a foundational principle for our fund is with companies that will do their proof of concept. And then when they're successful, like I said, we guaranteed to buy more. We call this doubling down. And what it does is incentivizes the success, but then also there's a reward where just because they've executed what we've purchased doesn't mean that it's a one and done. We'll be able to do another add-on purchase with them. So Charm Industrial is a great example where we bought an initial 1,000 tons from them. They over-delivered and managed to do that in record time. And so we were like, well, this is excellent. We need to make sure that we're providing ongoing support. So then we purchased another 2,000 tons and that's helped them sell out their capacity for their existing plant well into 2023, which it sounds like it's not a lot of money, that $5 million, but when you package it up year over year and that $5 million spend is connected and it's done in a focused way that meets all of these different businesses where they're at and the contracts are staged in such a way that it's being as impactful as possible for each of the companies to get them the capital they need when they need it, we're able to really have an outsized impact using our fund. And when you budget internally for that fund, how is that viewed in terms of its job from a business standpoint? I mean, is it viewed like a philanthropic contribution for the collective good? Is it a marketing expense? How how do you think about that? I guess it would depend on who you ask, because there's a lot of angles you can take with the fund. And when I talk about or I get asked about the return on investment and how we're measuring success and what's the play, it really is the success of the companies that are in our fund. That means that Shopify is being successful. 
And so internally, how we treat this is right now, a lot of the things that we're buying haven't yet been done. Some companies have not yet proven that, in fact, this is going to work at the rate that they expect, at the capacity they think. Scaling and cost curves are still being truthed and proven out. So right now, it's more of a trying to kickstart and we're very open to risk. However, longer term, this is going to transition as the carbon removal services begin for those companies that are successful, as they start to deliver tonnage to Shopify, this certainly will be something that will become material. And we really hope it will become material to our company because of the impact of our initial kickstarting the market. We're getting these carbon credits in, which we will then continue to retire against either our corporate footprint or shipping services or use them for merchant promotions. Like a great example is Black Friday, Cyber Monday, which is, you know, the largest shopping weekend around the world. And it happens just before the holidays. And we have this beautiful globe that shows all the orders where they're flying around the world. And it's really a wonderful rendering of what global commerce can look like. And what we do for Black Friday, Cyber Monday is we use the carbon removal credits that we get through our sustainability fund purchases to make every shipment for every order placed on that four-day weekend carbon neutral or even actually remove the emissions from that activity. So there's a direct connection to the business in terms of how we're using any of the carbon removal tonnage that's delivered. If I'm one of your peer companies, you know, a competitor or someone in an adjacent part of the commerce stack, and I say, look, that's great that you're doing that, but I run a publicly traded company. I'm accountable to shareholders from a financial standpoint every quarter. And I get that it helps the greater good, but I'm just trying to, you know, save my butt and deliver financial returns for my shareholders. Why would I do this? What would you say? That's a great question because we've had to answer that. We're a publicly traded company as well, delivering quarterly results and are accountable to the board and our shareholders. And how we think about it as a commerce company, as the entrepreneurship company that Shopify is, when we think about climate change and the long term, climate change has to be dealt with because it's a threat to entrepreneurship. And there's a couple layers to this. So I'll try to unpack what I mean by that. When we think about climate change and we think about the adverse effects that are starting to be more commonplace around the world. We've got rising sea levels, we have drought, we have wildfires, we have water shortages, we have increasing food prices. All of those things disproportionately affect marginalized populations around the world. All of those things that are putting stress on those populations, those are the same populations that would benefit the most from entrepreneurship. Those are the populations that need to become entrepreneurs, that need to build their businesses, that need Shopify. And when we think about being the entrepreneurship company and having global commerce be something that's sustainable in the long run, we want to make sure that entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship can thrive and people aren't just focused on surviving. And so when you look at like a hundred year time horizon, we need to take down climate change so that entrepreneurship can persist for everyone globally. So with that perspective, 
we need to deal with climate change and we need to spend money to decarbonize as a corporation so that we can protect our core business from the threat of climate change. And Shopify aside, if you just look at the state of carbon removal and you look at what it will take for it to make a meaningful dent in addressing the problem of climate change, where is carbon removal in the aggregate in getting there? What are the most promising areas within it? And what are the biggest barriers holding it back? Oh, this is what keeps me up at night and keeps me reading and digging and trying to solve that because there's so much in that question. What I can share in terms of where is carbon removal at, I've seen massive progress in just two years. When I started working on this in early 2020, it was massively challenging to spend $5 million. Now it's not hard. It's much easier. And because I've got a view into the 22 companies that are now in our sustainability fund, I can see how they're evolving and what's changing and what their success looks like. So even with our 5 million annual spend that we're doing, and obviously we need that to be a thousand times more to get to where we need to go, what that has done is the companies in our fund have raised tens of millions of dollars. They've grown their carbon removal capacity by as much as 80 times. That's 80x, which is a massive change in two years. And they've increased their customer base 40 times. So things are working. There is momentum. And I think there is going to be a significant increase in momentum. And I think it's going to accelerate. And I'm very hopeful about carbon removal getting to the point where it's a meaningful contributor to reversing climate change. What I'm excited about is more along the lines of what has not been done yet. What do we still not understand? What do we still need significant research into? And that makes me think of any kind of ocean-based solution. Right now, that is just an untapped wealth of space to put carbon. And being a massive carbon sink that the ocean is, any solution that uses the ocean doesn't have a competing land use. Like we're not trading off places for us to live, places to plant trees and to renature deforested areas. We're not trading off agricultural space. The ocean has a huge potential and it's hardly yet understood. We've just scratched the surface in terms of how to harness the ocean as the world's largest carbon sink. And so I'm super excited about that area of exploration because it just has such a huge untapped potential. It has a different set of risks associated with it, but it sits largely outside a lot of the criticisms around some carbon removal solutions and nature-based solutions specifically, where you know we can't reforest the world because we have to live and we have to eat. So trees aren't going to solve all of this for us. But if we can use our entire planet and all of the geology, all of the land and all of the oceans, I think we're going to get there. I think the voluntary market is important. It's not the only thing we've got, but it seems like it's the bulk of what we've got. Right now, I, my question is, how far can the voluntary market take us? And what is the theory of change here? Look, it's better that you're doing what you're doing than not doing it, but do you worry that you'll do it with these little dollars? And not to suggest, I mean, it's way better than no dollars, right? But if you need trillions and you're doing 5 million, then how do those dots connect? 
what needs to happen and how much do you think about and resource to ensuring that this entry point or beachhead, if you will, is actually kindling for a larger fire? That question is perfect because you've almost brought us full circle in our conversation because that's exactly why I chose to join Shopify. And I chose to leave government. That's where I was working before Shopify. I was at the Environment and Climate Change Canada working on the regulatory side of things. I chose to come to Shopify because I felt at the time, and I still firmly believe this, that the voluntary market and corporations are going to be able to move faster than the regulated space. Governments have a very important role in creating a level playing field across industries through standards and regulation. They really need to make the rules of the game fair, but incentives lie in the market when I think about business. So joining Shopify was really about having impact. And when corporations and business go out and prove that something is possible and spend the money and go, look, that $5 million that Shopify spends a year has achieved X, Y, and Z. And we've got all these other companies piling on and more purchases are happening. Work is taking place around defining what a high quality carbon removal credit should be. We're talking about permanence, additionality, atmospheric source, CO2. All of those things are starting to be talked about because companies like Shopify are demanding that quality and we're paying for it with our dollars. And when that starts to happen, you will get that follow on that'll eventually create the playing field for carbon removal and governments will start to shore that up. But if you want to be on the leading edge, I think you need to align yourself with where the incentives lie to get things moving, not to formalize and permanently entrench what's built. If you want to do the building, you have to be here and you have to start and you have to get others to contribute and join. And that's really what we're going to need is a monumental amount of capital being dedicated to purchasing high quality carbon removal to be that undeniable market demand signal that can be relied upon by the supply side of the equation that private financing and equity groups and venture capital can rely on to know that these are the companies I need to invest in because there is this market for their product and it's strong and it's going to be there and the demand is only going to grow. And so that's really what it's about, that using the voluntary market to build something that's robust. And I mean, it's not easy. There's a lot of criticisms there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, but I think in the long term, we'll be able to create something that will eventually be formalized. We've talked a lot about carbon removal. I understand that your role is not just the sustainability fund, but also the head of sustainability for Shopify. And earlier in this discussion, we talked about how one of your controversial views was that potentially, while we should do things to clean up our own footprints in the short term, maybe in the longer term, if carbon removal is wildly successful, we don't need to do that. So what are the implications there as it relates to how Shopify thinks about cleaning up its own footprint outside of carbon removal? Where are you on that journey? How much do you think about and resource to it? And how much do you believe companies need to think about and resource to it versus just going all in on carbon removal? 
You're right. The sustainability fund and carbon removal is one of three parts, three big buckets that I work on. So the first one that you've touched on here is, you know, our corporate emissions Mm -hmm. and our reduction strategy. And then there's also on the product side of things, how do we take the expertise that Shopify has in terms of carbon removal, but also in terms of managing our own corporate carbon footprint? How do we build products and consider that in our products that we're building for our merchants? So there's three sort of spaces to go back to Shopify's house. Back in 2019, when the realization that carbon removal didn't exist in the quantities and scale that's required, when we were doing that, it was to go out and buy credits from a project that would enable us to be carbon neutral and to be carbon neutral from back in 2004, when our CEO launched his first website that then became Shopify. We did all that data gathering, that measurement And at the same time as being accountable for our historical emissions, we also identified the critical levers that we needed to pull to reduce our emissions immediately. One of those was to decommission all of our data centers and transition those to renewable power. That was critical. So with all of that that was done, we're now at a reduced footprint. And I can quote the 2020 numbers. But to give you an example, our scope one, scope two, and select scope three emissions, when you take them all together, is around 6,000 tons. That's it. It's not a lot. Where the power of what I get to work on at Shopify lies is in making sure that what we're doing is pushing decarbonization in two places, decarbonization of the electricity grid, as well as decarbonization of shipping and transportation. We do that, and that's connected through the other buckets of my work. So the sustainability fund, we have two companies in our fund, 12, who manufacture e-jet, which is 80% less carbon intensive than regular jet fuel. And we also have Remora, who capture and store emissions from semi-trucks that do ground freight. We're supporting them so that they can scale And then that'll eventually contribute to decarbonizing that sector. For the renewable power side of things, we actually just earlier this year signed our first power purchase agreement. And it was a different kind of approach because we don't have data centers anymore. So we don't have these large point source electricity consumptions. What we've done is aggregated the emissions from all of our employee home offices in North America, figured out what that's going to be over the next 10 years. And we decided to go out and sign on to support the construction of a new wind farm in Alberta, which is one of the most carbon intensive electricity grids in North America. What we're doing is connecting our initiatives across all of the different areas so that we're moving the gigantic complex system of trying to solve climate change, and we're moving it in the same direction with each of the decisions and interventions that we make across the corporate side, as well as with our fund, but also for our merchants in terms of shipping. There's a couple of substantive topics that I don't want to close up without at least touching on. One is behavior change. We've talked about how carbon removal is successful. It means that potentially behavior change might not be as important. But what is your view in terms of where behavior change fits in? And that's both 
consumer behavior change in terms of purchasing decisions and stuff like that. But also, I mean, it's more at the systems level of things like fashion cycles and our consumptive culture. So that's one topic. And I'll just put the other one out too, just to get them all on the table. That's policy, whether it's incentives, whether it's mandates, whether it's phased obsolescence over time. What is the role of policy and how does Shopify think about its role in each of those buckets, if at all? I'll tackle the first one, the behavior change component. And let me be clear, while I think that in a sci-fi world 100 years from now, perhaps carbon removal will enable us to burn fossil fuels again, I certainly do not hold that belief in the short term. Behavior change is extremely important in terms of reducing our emissions now to give us the time to develop these technologies. When I think about, and at Shopify, when we think about behavior change in commerce, it's really about surfacing information and doing so in a way that has high fidelity. Let me give you an example. When you're shopping for something online, you're looking at it, especially if it's clothing, you're looking at it or it's a rug. Is that color really what the color is going to be when it gets here? Like, is it going to match my furniture? It's really important that commerce has a high fidelity where the merchant takes the picture using one device, takes the picture of the rug then that device processes that file. It's then uploaded. It's probably cut and trimmed again because of transmission. And then it goes up to a server where Shopify's operating system is running. Our system accepts it, then puts it into the platform. But then as the buyer, you're looking on another device. It's coming down from the servers through the internet through all these devices that are altering this file. And then you're looking at the picture of that same rug And is the orange actually the same orange after it's gone through all of this data transformation? If we can get that right, if we can spend the time and the detail, which we do, on trying to make commerce a high fidelity experience, then returns won't be a thing. If we can make commerce the best it can be, making it digitally high fidelity, it means that we will have less waste. People will know what they're buying. That's just one example. We also have a feature where using augmented reality, you can use your phone and you can be shopping for a table and you can, through your phone, see the table sitting in the room. Oh, that is the right size. That looks great with that chair. It's not too short. It's the right look I'm going for. And so it's about innovating on the commerce experience and on Shopify's platform that truly enables us to drive that behavioral change by enabling people and consumers to make informed choices. That's more about the technology side of things, but it's also on the data and education. And we really have a huge opportunity to influence buyers when they're choosing, say, their shipping. If you're buying a table, does it need to be there tomorrow? Do you need overnight shipping or can you wait a week? And if you wait a week, what's the climate benefit that you're enabling by using a slower shipping selection? So there's a lot of potential in commerce to do those behavioral changes that we all need today. Uh huh. And I easily could have pulled on that thread and asked a bunch more questions. But for sake of time, since we're running out, can we touch briefly on the policy? And then I just have a couple of other wrap up questions, quick ones. For sure. So when it comes to policy, I talked a little bit about it earlier that government's role is to create a level playing field. And I believe that that's critical when it comes to the climate space. But in terms of Shopify's involvement in view, we definitely have opinions on what quality carbon removal projects look like, what permanence is, durability, 
and how that should be characterized and formalized into standards is going to be very important because it's about what I talked about earlier, where we want to make sure that we're removing the smoke and mirrors from the carbon accounting. It has to be impactful. And the best way to do that and to remove friction and to be transparent is to have that quality definition clearly laid out and applicable across the entire sector in terms of what kind of credit you can buy to allocate towards your corporate footprint. That'll be very important going forward. If you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control that could most accelerate your efforts and our efforts to address the problem of climate change, what would you change and how would you change it? Can I have two? Sure. The first thing I would change is that there's a lot of discussion around it should be a nature-based solution. Oh no, the engineered solutions are going to save us. I really want that to be much more harmonious. If I could change that hero posturing, it would be remarkable because we need all of it and we need all of it for a variety of reasons and no solutions better than any other solution. As long as they're providing benefit, then we should pursue them all. So I really would love that picking and downplaying other solutions and pitting them against each other to end and for all of us to recognize that we all have a role to play in this. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing that I would also change is I'm a very optimistic person and I think we need to have a lot more optimism when we talk about climate change action and a little bit less of the doomsday, I mean, doomsday is important so that we know the urgency of the situation, but I mean, we're human. And until we feel the adverse effects physically ourselves to where we live, our house, our family, we're actually not going to change anything. The doom and gloom is not going to make everybody change their behavior. What we need to focus on is empowering people and building a sense of community. And I think you're doing a great job at that. Jason, with uh, your podcast and your collective. So. Oh, thanks, Stacey. And uh, last question is for anyone listening that's inspired by your work. How can we be helpful to you? And who do you want to hear from, if anyone? I want to hear from anyone working on a climate solution. I want to hear from anyone who's interested in buying carbon removal, but doesn't know where to start. Those are our two big pushes, finding more companies to support and building up the community of buyers. Awesome. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? I think you covered a lot of ground. And I think we now have a one-two punch between uh, Cody's <laughs> podcast and this episode. So maybe uh, some co-marketing there would be great. Yeah, we'll have to link to <laughs> Cody's episode when he was still at Techstars before he became one of my partners at MCJ Collective, which we're thrilled about. So Stacy, thank you so much. Really awesome discussion and a really awesome initiative. What an unlikely climate hero, but a climate hero you are. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.